You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. All right, today we are joined by Beth Piatak and Alyssa Lee. Thank you both so much for being on the show. Thank you for having us. It's my pleasure, Beth. You are the director of the Lifestyle Redesign Knowledge Mobilization Initiative at the University of Southern California. And Alyssa, you are the director of community engagement for the Office of the Governor at California Volunteers. Can you introduce us to what you do in your roles and how you two first connected? Sure. Um, So I also work as an associate professor at USC and One of my roles is directing the Lifestyle Redesign Knowledge Mobilization Initiative, where we're trying to uh, actually get the word out and provide better resources for OT practitioners to use lifestyle redesign in their practice. And that got underway last year, and we're starting to see some fruits of our labor. And also, I do research primarily in diabetes and chronic condition management and mentor doctoral students, uh, as as well as a variety of other students, undergrad and master's students. So Beth, you pretty much do it all there at USC. (laughs) (laughs) Alyssa, um, how would you introduce uh, a a quick snapshot of of what you do for our listeners? Yeah, so I started a couple months ago uh, in the governor's office in California. Um, I am the director of community engagement, as you said. Uh, My what I'm tasked with is thinking through how Californians get to know each other, um, particularly Californian neighbors. Um, and it's been a really fascinating way to apply my occupational therapy education and think through behavioral change and addressing social isolation. Um, but uh, I guess your second question was around how we met. Um, I was one of the students that Beth mentored um, throughout my master's and my doctorate at USC. Um, and yeah, I don't know, Beth, if you want to tell the story. <laughs> sure. Um, I'm interviewing student workers, as I do every fall. Um, we bring new people on the team. And I remember Alyssa was talking about, I saw Alyssa's CV, and there was just such a wide variety of things she'd been involved with. And I said, wow, you know, it's pretty remarkable that you've, you've done all of these different things in, um, leading up to this point. And she shared, or she framed it as having shiny object syndrome. And I just like, resonated with that right away. And I thought, oh, I also have shiny object syndrome and I know exactly what you mean. And I think it would be great to have someone, someone with that energy um, working in our lab. So that was how we <laughs> worked together. I Actually, love I remember that. being mortified <laughs> because shiny object syndrome didn't seem like a very positive connotation. And I was like, why did I tell my interviewer that? <laughs> um, but I don't know. I felt so comfortable with Beth, I think, in the first few moments of talking to her. Um, and I think I got to spend the, the, the next three years with you. I love that. That is wonderful. And now we have three people all together with shiny object syndrome. <laughs> Let's see if we can put together a solid yeah, interview for our listeners. <laughs> um, and Alyssa, I heard that were you the student who actually named the research lab? Is that is that a myth? Can you two tell us that story as well? Yeah, I think Beth, you had a, just gotten a couple of grants and like was putting putting together this big research lab. Um, and you, I think there was like a gift card raffle of like whoever can name the lab 
Um, and I remember actually we were at your house for a gathering and we put all these names on the on your door maybe. <laughs> um, yes, that is that is not a myth. That's that's true, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and you had the winning name. I I love how you two connected and the mentor-mentee relationship is so important in occupational therapy. Um, but I love how you emphasize community and helped establish a community and a true collaboration, which really makes learning and the implementation of occupational therapy principles so much easier and so much more meaningful, I think. Um, our, our main topic today, we're going to talk about how you two co-edited a book in the 50 Studies Every Doctor Should Know series. Um, and this book is titled 50 Studies Every Occupational Therapist Should Know. Can you introduce us to the concept behind the 50 Studies books? So I actually did a health systems fellowship when I was at USC um, under the GARE Center for Oh no, I'm going to mess this up. Gary Center for Health System Science and Innovation. Um, one of my mentors there uh, is Dr. Mike Hockman, and he is also the series editor for the 50 Studies book. And essentially, he created this series as a quick guide for what key studies have sh shaped the pr practice of medicine. Um, and I guess in our conversations, he reached out and asked whether we could write an occupational therapy version and was really excited. Um, to be the first allied health book um, in all the series. And I'll jump in. So when Alyssa came <laughs> in, she said, Mike Hockman wants us to edit this book for his series with Oxford University Press. And that was a little intimidating, but I also had in the back of my mind um, when Florence Clark was the associate dean in our division. And there was a time, anyone who knows Florence knows she would kind of get on um, – kicks about different topics. And so at one point, she was really uh, concerned that all of the students in our program knew some of the seminal studies in, in occupational therapy. And she would, I just have this vision of her walking through the halls going, do our students know the capable study? Do our students know? Like all of these kind of um, studies that she felt were really important for OTs to know. And I thought this is my opportunity to answer that call and give um, make sure that OTs have access to this resource of kind of encapsulating all of those studies. I love that. I love that so much. And it's it's amazing that you two were, you know, poised and ready to to take on a task of of editing, you know, a publication for Oxford Press. That that definitely does sound intimidating. Um I, I also like how you mentioned these these seminal type studies. Uh, because I feel in our profession and and our education, we really try to emphasize evidence-based practice, but so much of that is understanding um where our evidence comes from and and the history of how evidence has kind of evolved and and continues to evolve with the profession um what what would you say kind of the ultimate mission or goal you set out to accomplish when taking on the task to represent the range of ot literature with this book was so actually in our health systems work and uh, in ot we also talk about the 17-year odyssey um, which is that 14% of healthcare research gets implemented over a span of 17 years. And, and I'm actually not sure how true that is anymore. I think uh, I think it was like a 20-year-ago study, but I feel like it's still pretty relevant today. The mission for this was to really think through helping bridge that gap between research and practice um, and making it more accessible, having this one book for 50 studies 
Um, we understand as practitioners, if you're seeing 10 patients, 20 patients a day, it's not super accessible to be leaping through all the research and keeping up with the best practices and the seminal studies. Um, so thought this would be like a quick, easy guide for folks. Yeah, I think I think also we saw it as a potential introduction either to students who are just getting into the occupational therapy field or for other health professionals or people who are interested in understanding occupational therapy better to kind of have the one resource that shows a, an overview of the field. Yeah, that's wonderful. It's definitely a resource that can be used as an introduction for people trying to learn more about the profession, but also as a resource for people who have been practicing for a number of years or know a lot about occupational therapy to continue to consult and, and refer to. Um, I love that phrase, the 17-year odyssey. I've never heard it referred to like that before. Mm -hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start using that if that's okay. Of course. <laughs> Why do you feel it is so important to have resources like this one? Why is it important for OT practitioners to consult and, and really make an effort to use evidence to inform their practice? You know, when we teach about evidence-based practice, we always, we always approach it as a sort of three-pronged um, practice, right? So we're taking into account the best available research evidence, um, the clinician's clinical judgment and reasoning, and the client's preferences and um, goals. So we think that the evidence piece of that is really important to understand, you know, in different contexts, what's been shown to be helpful or not helpful, and understanding that every study um, has its strengths and weaknesses. And so you shouldn't be just directly applying what one study has as its conclusion to a patient that might seem similar, but we tried to do in the book kind of drawing out what are some of those strengths and weaknesses and how can you think critically about how to apply um, a given research study into your practice. I love that. And we'll get into kind of how the studies are presented and how the book is laid out. It is really clear. I like how you use that three-pronged approach um, in teaching about evidence-based practice and, and designing a resource that can uh, support that um, in, in practice. There's a, a long list of contributors to this publication. How did you go about kind of using this three-pronged approach as your guide to identify the studies and selecting just the 50 that you believe to best represent the profession and purpose of the book? So the two of us knew that we, we as two people were definitely not qualified to you know, look at the whole breadth of the OT profession and which studies were most influential. There's there's so much variety in OT practice. And so actually mm -hmm. one of the, the new features of the volume that we put together in the series is having section editors. So we invited some of our trusted colleagues who we knew um, were knowledgeable about some of these different areas of practice that we were less familiar with. So collectively, Alyssa and I and this group of section editors brainstormed, you know, came together with lists of studies based on, you know, the, the rigor of the studies that had been done, how much they had influenced practice, were they kind of widely cited and, and known about in the OT field. And then we actually generated a list of about 70 plus studies. And that list went out to peer reviewers in occupational therapy. So it was blinded. We don't know who reviewed it, but thanks to them. Um, so they also had an opportunity to give feedback on what they felt were the most influential studies. And with their feedback, we winnowed it down to that final 50. I like that. Thanks for giving us kind of a, a sneak peek into um, in, into that process. So, so 
in some schools of thought, you know, you use this sort of hierarchy of evidence to pick the studies that are sort of, quote unquote, best designed or most rigorous, like randomized controlled trials being at the top. Um, and we considered that, but we just, we really felt it was important to represent the breadth of OT. So if you really just narrow it down to which areas have a lot of randomized controlled trials, it's definitely focused in like certain small practice areas and would have left out a lot of a lot of OT research that we thought was important. So I just wanted to mention that as one of our other criteria. This wasn't exactly your question, but we chose the five section er as the different areas of AOTA. So we had health, health and wellness, adult rehabilitation, productive aging, children and youth, and mental health as the five different sections. And I, I think when we first started, um, uh, the Dr. Hawkman was, shared that, oh, like we just want like large random RCTs, like gold standard kind of research studies. And as we were looking, we realized that it would be, yeah, it would, leave, as Beth said, leave out a lot of um, the smaller practice areas or um, also the kind of qualitative and um, yeah, a lot of the qualitative pieces that really, I think, have influenced occupational therapy to where it is today. That's a, that's a really interesting point. Um, and it, it sounds like, you know, you were willing to make exceptions when it came to, you know, maybe study design, rigor and citation rate of the studies that you included in order to provide a picture that really includes all aspects of OT and includes the whole scope of OT. Um, would you say that kind of the the quality of studies included in this edition is, is different from the other books in the 50 studies series or does this kind of highlight a need for OT practitioners to promote more scientific research um, within our field or how would you kind of address uh, that difference there? In terms of the difference in, between the OT volume and the medical volumes, I guess one thing I'd say is different fields value different types of knowledge differently. So sometimes in medicine, there really is a right answer, you know, like does a drug A work better than drug B? And I think in rehabilitation and in some of the work we do, it's not as clear cut. The interventions we do are much more complex and they're taking into account a much more holistic perspective. And so I don't think the randomized controlled trial actually is always the best or most appropriate way to evaluate um, things that are relevant to OT practice. And at the same time, that being said, I think there's definitely always more room for more research and to better understand using a variety of methods, you know, what works best and what is most helpful to the clients and patients we serve. So it's sort of a both and. I love that. I love that uh, answer and perspective on um, kind of how to how to get the best of both worlds. And OT is very holistic and person centered. That can be uh, tough to capture in a randomized controlled trial or uh, some of these studies that are um, perceived as being a lot more rigorous um, when it when it comes to medical research. I want to hear from you both before we dive into these six sections and talk more about the specifics of these studies. What's your overall hope? What are you hoping that readers really learn or take away from this book? Myself as an OT practitioner for, let's see, almost 20 years now, it was really such a joy to read all of these chapters, and I've read all of them several times <laughs> in the editing process. Um, I mean, I feel like I learned a lot about OT practice. There were things that I didn't know were, were a part of the scope of OT, and 
it just sort of reminded me and made me feel really excited about our profession again and all the different things that we can do and be involved in. So, so from a practitioner perspective, I hope you kind of rediscover some things about OT that you might have forgotten as you've, you know, gotten into a very niche or specialized practice area. I love that. And uh, Alyssa, what about you? What are you hoping readers take away from uh, from reading this book? I think that when we were writing or co-editing this book and thinking through the different sections and the introduction, um, we kept going back to the question of what is occupational therapy? Um, and we've all heard that question several times, I'm sure, <laughs> throughout our days with our patients and with other practitioners. Um, so I'm really hoping readers um, develop that kind of elevator speech and kind of understand the breadth and depth of occupational therapy. I guess the other thing of note for me was, um, I guess this helped us distill research into kind of little chapters. Um, and we put a lot of thought around thinking through um, the diversity of perspectives here, as well as the application to case studies. We wanted to help one distill research into summaries. Um, but also kind of put an application. Um, I know sometimes research is hard to kind of move the abstract into practice. And so we really put a lot of thought behind the case studies and thinking through and bringing in practitioners who are well, well experienced in those areas. And so in our case studies, we wanted to incorporate the di diversity of perspectives there, as well as I think we were the first book to incorporate pronouns um, and I think actually, Beth, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but we also helped to shape some of the guidelines around diversity and application of case studies at Oxford and in including more of the historically excluded communities. Yeah, I, yeah, I do believe that's true, which is really exciting. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And this book, you know, I, I have my copy, it's on my, my desk right, right now as we're having this conversation. Um, and I, I would agree. It's kind of that feeling that I get when I'm reviewing it is like, oh, wow, like occupational therapy rocks. Like there's so much that like this profession can do. And I love how you mentioned as well, Alyssa, making this research applicable. So not just easier to consume for the reader, but also easier for them to take and apply to what they do on a day to day basis. Um, I think that's such a key ingredient when it comes to evidence based practice. We'll get back to our interview right after this quick message. You all know we really try to make research more consumable and applicable on everyday evidence. But did you know that just one minute of your time could help us to improve the show? improve the resources the American Occupational Therapy Association provides for practitioners, and improve the application of evidence to practice within our whole field. Please take our one-minute survey. It's only three questions, and you can find the link in this and every episode's description. And support the AOTA in continued efforts to improve our podcasts and to improve the translation of research to practice. Now back to the interview. Let's talk a little bit more about the specific sections now. Alyssa mentioned earlier, it's organized into six sections. Here's my big quiz of the day. I'm going to try and list them all right now. So we've got productive aging, health and wellness, work and industry, mental health, children and youth, and rehab and disability. Um, I think that's all six, right? 100%. There, there we go. Um, I, I learned from the best, the literal editors. Um, but each 
um, of these sections is a, a key practice area within occupational therapy. I love how the book is set up. There's anywhere between five to 13 studies included in each section. And each study includes links to where to find the full text, summaries of the methods, results, limitations, related studies, additional information, um, implications, and like you mentioned, Alyssa, a case study. Um, so how do you hope that practitioners can take this section, look at these studies? Um, how do you hope they're using this resource? As a recently former student myself, I'm really hoping it'll help students dip their toes into research, um, kind of help them frame and answer the question, what is occupational therapy? Um, I've also had a couple of other friends who are outside of occupational therapy, um, some doctors and pharmacists, take a look at the book and kind of have a better understanding of occupational therapy, which is really exciting. I mean, I think if you're looking at this book from the perspective of your practice area, I hope you feel like, you know, that's well represented and, and that the studies that are in there are important in some way to the work you do. and as like I said earlier, as you look at some of the other sections that are a little bit less related to your practice, um, I think it's a, you know, it could be a resource, for example, if someone wants to change practice areas, it could be, maybe there's something to learn, you know, in a different practice area that actually has some relevance to, to someone that you're working with. So you might be in a rehab setting, but you have someone with some significant mental health challenges. And so maybe just taking a, a dip into that and seeing if there's a chapter that might be relevant. Um, and also, in addition to the 50 studies, we had the opportunity to include, you know, little snippets about other relevant studies and information. So we hope that this could be sort of a starting point that might spark some interest and in, to maybe going deeper into a particular topic area and learning more. I love that. I love that that perspective and and those ideas on kind of how to use this resource um, to boost your own practice, but also to advocate for the profession and look into other things that might be interesting and and worthy of pursuing uh, individually or for future clients. Um, what recommendations or tips and tricks would you give uh, that could help? readers improve the way they consume, analyze, and apply research? Well, one thing I'll say, I know that um, oftentimes people in the community who aren't at an academic institution can be frustrated because it's hard to even just access articles oftentimes. Um, and so one tip I wanted to share is just that, you know, every article is published with the corresponding author and their contact information, usually an email address. And it's honestly one of the best um, things to see in my mailbox is, you know, an OT practitioner who actually wants to read my study and apply it to their work and wants me to send them a copy. So, so one thing I would say is just don't be limited to the studies that are easy to access, but definitely um, reach out to researchers. We're real people at the other end of the piece of paper, and we'd love to hear what you're doing and how you're potentially using our work. Um, I guess that's for the person who really isn't intimidated. So just to encourage other practitioners um, out in the community to, to go ahead and, and start that dialogue and just let us know that you're out there. Yeah, we need to close the 17-year odyssey. <laughs> um, yeah, I, the other thing I would recommend is journal clubs, even if they're informal. Um, I, I still have journal clubs, even though I'm no longer practicing, but when there's like a cool research study, some of my friends and I will discuss it. Um, I feel like there's always different perspectives that come up and things I've never even considered. 
And one last thing is, is don't be intimidated if you don't understand every detail of the methods section. There's still a lot you can get out of an article if you're looking at the um, discussion should, should really be written to help you understand, like, how do the results of the study apply to the real world and how does it help us guide our understanding? So, so start with the discussion if the other parts of the article are um, feel overwhelming. I love that. I love that. Those are great tips um, because evidence-based practice can feel overwhelming at times, but those are great suggestions and recommendations on how to make things manageable and also to recruit a team. Uh, none of us have to be alone in our efforts to um, consume evidence and, and try and apply apply it to, to what we do. Um, so those are wonderful. Um, Beth, you mentioned earlier how... Uh, included in the book are some of these seminal studies within occupational therapy. Um, some of them are, uh, that are included in the resource are from, you know, decades ago. Why, uh, are these seminal works included and, and why are they so important, um, for practitioners to keep in mind, uh, when learning about research and, uh, why should they worry about consulting these, um, as well as more recent publications? That's a great question. And definitely we wanted to emphasize some of the newer research just because things do continually evolve and, and we learn more and build on top of, you know, prior knowledge. But at the same time, there's some studies that we felt like were so important and so foundational to things that have come since then that we just felt they ought to be represented rather than, for example, if you take the, the well elderly study, I could have pulled, you know, 25 articles that have been written on things that were sort of spun off from or inspired by or informed by the elderly study. But if you don't have that context of what happened in that original research, then you may may not have a solid foundation for understanding the strengths and weaknesses of all those studies that came after. And, and similarly with the clinical reasoning um, text, we thought that just really shaped the way the field thinks about clinical reasoning. And so we could we could have chosen a more recent study about clinical reasoning, but but everything that has come since then really has been informed by that. So we wanted to make sure that that foundation was represented as well. I love that. I love that those foundations are so important and uh, for for us all to to be aware of. Um, uh, there's so many wonderful chapters. I want to ask if you have a favorite chapter or a favorite study included in the book. And if you could share with us uh, kind of why that study or that chapter sticks out to you um, and, and how it's kind of helped you grow as a, as a practitioner. There were so many. This was a hard question to think about. Um, one thing, though, that I came back to was just the kind of like surprise and delight that I found when I was was looking at certain chapters, just like, oh, I had no idea that it was something OT was involved in. And one of those was, it was about um, preterm infants in the NICU and, and how um, like light touch massage versus like more um, moderate pressure massage would, you know, enhance their development and their, um, their well being. And I just thought like, I can't believe that 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 I'm in a field that that is a part of and it's just so far from what I do, and I, I loved learning about it. On a very, very different realm of occupational therapy, but <laughs> maybe equally as important. Um, my, one of my favorite studies uh, was written by, I think, one of my colleagues, Carlos, um, the Occupation-Based Interventions for Addictive Disorders. 
um, really thinking through addiction as an occupation, um, which I thought was a very revolutionary way of thinking about addiction um, and a very occupational therapy driven. Um, how do we help uh, folks uh, support patients with addictions um, to think alternate occupations that they could be spending their time with? And I think it, I think the case study there was uh, actually one of Carlos's patients, I think a little bit modified uh, for, yeah, really impactful study for me. I love that. I love that. Thanks for highlighting those two uh, specifics. I, I agree. This book does such a wonderful job at painting a picture of the scope of occupational therapy um, and what all the wonderful practitioners in our field can do and are doing on, on a daily basis. Um, I'm a, a pediatric practitioner, and so I really honed in on the, the children and youth chapter. Um, and I found a lot of the information and seminal studies related to uh, sensory processing and sensory integration really helpful. And, uh, the, you know, the shiny object syndrome is very evident as there's notes all over the margins and uh, like references to new studies and uh, additional assessments and presentations from uh, AOTA inspires. So it's, it's a really a wonderful resource. Um, what are some additional guidelines um, or, or tips for using research and, and evidence to inform the OT process and to make clinical decisions when practitioners are face-to-face -face with their client? I think um, it goes back kind of to what we talked about earlier about those three prongs to evidence-based practice. So, so it's important to understand what's going on in research and what studies have found. And I think it's equally important to understand like, who were those studies done with? Are they people, you know, do they look like the client that's in front of me? Do they, are they different in important ways that I might need to take into consideration? And I think something I really liked about the chapters is we have a few case studies where we're illustrating how the findings of a given study are not relevant to, you know, the client or patient in front of the OT and kind of explaining why and just trying to illustrate that, like, to not take research as gospel, to use it as one source of information. You know, you can try something out that was shown in a research study to be effective, but also if that doesn't seem to be working, you know, try something else. Look for another study. Look for what colleagues are, are seeing is working. So just kind of keeping a flexible mindset about it, I guess is what I'd say. I love that. A flexible and a, a growth mindset. Um, Alyssa, how about from you? Do you have uh, additional guidelines for how to use research and evidence to inform that OT process and, and clinical decision making? So I previously worked at a pediatric clinic. And um, when we were first, when I first came in, I came in with a very research heavy mindset. Um, and, and we were developing, um, I guess, guidelines for well child visits, what an occupational therapist would do during a well child visit. And so we would bring in survey after survey. So there was maternal mental health, there was ACEs, there was, um, you know, motor, fine motor, gross motor, um, all the developmental milestone pieces. Um, and what we then, I guess, through the process realized was patients were being burnt out <laughs> um, and experiencing a lot of survey fatigue. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe this is just an illustration of what Beth was sharing. Um, but uh, over time, I was we we thought through how do we how we could get the information that we needed um, at each, I guess, well child visit. Um, and so 
we were able to kind of shorten the amount of surveys, what was most relevant at age two versus at, you know, six months. Um, how do we tailor each, uh, especially if we were seeing like mom struggling with a couple of things, should we do a maternal mental health screening? Like how do we kind of do the early screening pieces um, so that we weren't overwhelming um, our patients and our patients' caregivers? That's a that's really a wonderful example of your creative problem solving to emphasize, uh, you know, the evidence and the data, but also to not ignore the actual person um, and the person <laughs> factors and, and all those important considerations that I love um, are emphasized within occupational therapy practice and prioritized as well. Um, are there additional case studies or personal examples of how using evidence in your practice has led to positive outcomes that you can share with us now? You know, I, um, I've been very interested in communication and, you know, how do, how do providers and uh, healthcare professionals talk to patients? And then a lot of that translates, I think, to how I talk with my students. And I've done a lot of reading and looked at a lot of studies, but one that stood out to me because I think because of just the simplicity of it is, it was a study of um, medical visits, and they had, I think the doctor at the end of the visit, instead of saying, do you have any more questions? They said, do you have some other questions? And they found that that simple, tiny word change gave people more of an opportunity to share what was actually on their mind during the visit. And so they elicited more uh, concerns or things that people wanted to talk about. And at the same time, they measured how long these visits took, because the fear is like, if you unleash the floodgates that you'll be in this visit forever talking to a patient about their questions. Um, but they found that the visits were equivalent in length. So I really, that was probably the start of this interest in communication and how we, um, how we relate to one another that I think I've definitely tried to carry through all of my work, just being really thoughtful about how, how we open, you know, our conversations to let other people in and really hear everyone's perspectives. I love that. That's a, that's a wonderful example. Thank you for, for sharing that. Um, Alyssa, how about you? An, uh, an additional case study or personal example you'd like to share? Yeah. Kind of following my story earlier um, in pediatric uh, well-child visits, um, I guess was it in 2017 that the ACEs study really came to uh, light? And I think the Sur California Sur Surgeon General had um, prescribed doctors or pediatric primary care practitioners to be screening for the adverse childhood experiences. And I remember experiencing a lot of pushback from the practitioners because, you know, once you kind of open the floodgates and kind of ask people about their adverse childhood experiences, um, there could be a lot that could happen, um, but was able to kind of look at the interventions and the research around uh, how do you intervene and how do you follow up? And so um, I feel like in pediatrics, we really wanted to think through family-centered care. And when we did the adverse childhood experiences um, screenings, we would kind of set aside time to talk with the family, talk with the caregivers uh, of the kids and really make sure that they were getting the right resources um, to be addressing this. Um, we did it for both caregivers and for the kids. And th there were some really emotional moments and some really tense moments. And 
Um, I, I remember one mom, she had been through the foster care system. Um, and I think she was a couple years younger than me at the time. Um, and she had two kids and her dad, uh, I guess the kid's father um, had just come out of prison. And like, it was the first time someone had really asked her about it and, and kind of helped her understand the impact of maybe her depression um, on, on the kids and how we could kind of help with different tools and different skills so that she could help um, help her kids as well as herself. Um, we were able to get her connected um, with a mental health, health practitioner. Um, we were help, able to help with her older kid around some of his behavioral issues by using like little like visual charts of like what's happening next. Like we're going to the doctors, is it we're going to the park? Um, as well as uh, her younger child was six months and wasn't sitting quite yet, um, helping her find the tools and skills so that she could practice um, tummy time with him um, and help with that. I love that. I love that. Thank you. Both of uh, your examples are great illustrations of how evidence-based practice and person-centered care um, really support one another um, and and including both of them and what we do uh, really helps to ensure that we're practicing at the top of our license and, and positive and, and best outcomes are, are achievable um, when, when both are emphasized. Um, I, I want to ask uh, globally kind of what, what are some things that you learned personally from developing this book, from making the connections, gathering the studies and, and putting them all together? What were your main takeaways as an editor? I learned a lot about how to herd cats, although Alyssa gets a ton of credit in that respect. <laughs> <laughs> organized about staying on top of deadlines and things. And I learned, you know, as I mentioned before, I just learned a lot about OT practice or refresh my memory about things that I hadn't thought about in a long time. Um, so I think it's both learning about OT and just learning, you know, a lot about the publishing process and what goes into putting together a book like this. I learned that spreadsheets are a friend. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I think the whole process maybe took a couple of years, right, Beth? Yeah, and it was all during COVID, so we had that layer of challenge on top of it. Definitely, yeah. I think we both each read each chapter like three to five times. Um, <laughs> as a student, I learned that professors are also really bad at deadlines. <laughs> 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 it was really incredible. I think it was a great opportunity to to learn about all the different parts of OT research, um, meet all the big players. I feel like I was starstruck so many times throughout this process because uh, these were all the people we read about and learned about. Um, and, and I think there were like small specific things that I learned. I think um, in particular, I think it was the LIFE program um, on fall prevention, um, the right, the writers of the chapter are Taiwanese immigrant um, background, just like I am. And I was talking to Dr. Hu about the program and how it might be applied to um, to Taiwanese folks since she, she was moving back at the time. And she was like, well, this isn't actually something that would be super applicable because we haven't really moved to having practitioners in people's homes. Um, and I, that was like a learning for me because I had grown up there and had never considered um, kind of the cultural implications of that. Um, and I think that one, that study was primarily done with African-American patients in Michigan, if I'm not wrong. Um, and so, 
yeah, it was, I feel like I was like learning throughout this whole process about not only uh, OT research, but how it was being applied um, in different settings. That's wonderful. The learning journey truly never, never ends. Um, I I can't believe I've waited until now to ask this, this question, but where, where can our listeners find the book? How can our listeners get a copy of this <laughs> wonderful resource? Uh, any online retailer near you, um, Oxford University Press website or any of the other major booksellers online are, are all great resources. Wonderful. And we'll be sure to have a link to um, that option in the episode description. Uh, what, what additional resources would you recommend to practitioners who want to learn more about, um, you know, the 50 studies or anything uh, that we've really discussed today? One thing that comes to mind is just the OT publications. You know, I know that you're working with AOTA and the OT practice um, and the special interest section quarterlies. And AJOT, of course, but I feel like some of the more accessible and immediately relevant um, articles come out of some of those other publications. And I really, I really like reading those for sort of a snapshot of what's going on without having to get into a really heavy um, academic scientific article. So I think those are some good OT resources to check out if people are not already reading those. Beth and Alyssa, we end every show here with the Golden Nugget segment. And I have the pleasure of asking each of you to leave us with a Golden Nugget today. If you could tell practitioners one thing, what would it be? I would say OT researchers are eager to talk with you about how our work could inform your practice. What is missing from the evidence that you need, um, because I think that's such an important link. So I hope that this book helps to foster those kind of dialogues. Yeah, I would tell people to buy our book. (laughs) 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 I think also to kind of consider this book as a work in progress, like, I think in the way that healthcare can always be improved. I know occupational therapy, we can always improve. And I think there, there was, I think in our introduction, we kind of talked about Hamill and Lavely and Johnson and thinking through the healthy skepticism around the universal, universality of our assumptions around occupation and thinking about how we can use occupation as a tool to reinforce occupational justice in the world. Um, yeah, I love that. I love that. Those are wonderful recommendations, wonderful ideas. Um, thank you both so much for your time. I I love your golden nuggets that you're leaving us with. You know, we've talked about in this interview um, about reducing the gap between research and evidence. Um, But so often we forget to talk about reducing the gap between practitioner and researcher. Um, And I think these conversations really help us to to do just that um, and work on collaborating and community and and having conversations um, that implement all all areas of occupational therapy practice. So Beth Piatak, Alyssa Lee, thank you both so much for being on the show today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having us. You're you're doing a special promotion um, for the book coming up. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, we wanted to give podcast listeners an opportunity to check out the book and get a feel for it if it's something they'd be interested in as a resource. So we're going to make 
one of the book chapters available to your listeners for 30 days. So we will have that um, up when the podcast drops. Wonderful. Look at that. Our listeners get a little special access. Um, so please check it out. Uh, and honestly, you're going to love it so much that you're going to want the rest of the book. Um, thank you again, both for, uh, this little sneak peek that you're giving our listeners and again, for, uh, such an informative and, um, and fun interview. Thanks for listening to everyday evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications. 